I'm thrilled to be here with Michael Eisenberg, who is a uh, venture capitalist in Israel, as well as a Torah scholar, and he's written a book called The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis, which I love on many levels. Um, on a meta level, it's just great to see people combining their personal experience and insight uh, into Torah study and creating uh, texts and commentaries that combine something that they have expertise and passion in with something that's sort of a bedrock for all of us. So I, I, I'm pleased to be able to talk about Torah with him and many things besides, and uh, thank you for writing the book. Welcome. Thanks, Zor, for having me. I've been a fan of yours from Thread of Palooza's to uh, the weekly uh, piece on the, on the weekly Torah Parsha. So uh, wonderful to be here. As, as I mentioned in the kind of the preamble, I feel like we really know each other and we've never met. It's, it's a funny, funny thing in the modern world. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the idea of knowing someone without meeting and, and if you have any kind of reflections on that, either from the tech side or from the sort of Jewish history side. I'll say uh, two or three things, and I wasn't even thinking of this question, but it's something I've given some thought to recently. Number one, I think when you share broadly a belief system and a code, uh, you can know someone without knowing someone. What does that mean? If I can more or less, emphasis on more or less, predict how you will respond because your values are roughly similar to mine, then I can know you without knowing you because you become more predictable. I think, by the way, uh, that is a core of the, the Torah's view of an economic system. But I think it's true in humanity uh, as well when we have shared values and even shared assumptions. It's easier to do business together because I know you, uh, even though I don't know you. That's kind of, I think, point one. Point two is that the Internet has enabled uh, communities of interest to form uh, globally. I, I tell a funny story in, in like, it was in 96, I wrote a piece for Globes, the Israel Business Language Daily about the future of the internet. One of the things I said um, was that communities of people who are far flung and have trouble communicating or meeting uh, would emerge on the internet. And I talked about, in my own case, being a Yankees fan in Israel and being able to find commonality with Yankees fans in, in New York. And I also mentioned uh, gays as another community. This is 26 years ago, who would find itself on uh, on the internet in a way that was easier to find itself in in, in person. Um, and I think, I think the internet has actually done that, uh, forged communities of interest for good and for bad, by the way, um, where you can know somebody without fully knowing them. There is a certain amount, maybe a significant amount of superficiality in that, but but nonetheless. And then I think the the third element um, of, of knowing someone without knowing them is we know people in common. I, what I, I found you through, I think, Ari Lam uh, originally. And so we all, and this is true in my venture business as well, use people as proxies for people we can know and trust. And uh, you and I, it turns out, even though we don't, uh, we haven't met, actually know a large number of people in common, even though we've never spent time in the same place. Uh, we, I didn't even know you existed uh, until Ari Lam pointed you pointed me in your direction. Uh, and I started following you on, on Twitter and getting your, your, your weekly and now twice weekly missives. Um, but because we know so many people in common, I feel like I can know you. And so I want to make the effort to go do that. And I find, I find everything you write and talk about super interesting. So I'm intellectually stimulated about it, which of course arouses a greater interest in really getting to know you. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I'm going to stay on this meta point because uh, it's it's I, I have this intuition that sort of the first thing that a person mentions is often the key to something the the most important thing. So um, in this uh, in this vein of sort of self reflection, I was thinking about actually biblical prophecy as a kind of antecedent to work remote or work from home or maybe something like the internet. So just uh, stay with me for a second on that. Um, you know, Isaiah famously says, and this is a line that gets uh, that gets quoted in the liturgy and in many places, uh, the whole land or the whole world is filled with God's glory. Uh, mystics take that in a kind of pantheistic direction to say, look, you know, every experience, every moment is is divine in some way. Um, Yehuda Halevi, the, the medieval poet, sort of um, reads it as a as a way of talking about how God can be present in the act of prayer and the act of poetry. Um, 
And yet in its time, that was a radical statement because Isaiah seems to be responding to the to the more orthodox or mainstream position, which is God is to be found in the temple in Jerusalem and nowhere else, right? And the um, <laughs> there's a certain certain line of thinking from Deuteronomy and and from other parts of the Torah that's very strict about not worshiping God in other places, at least with sacrifice or um, sort of collective ritual, not creating sects of Judaism where you know you worship in this place and I worship in this. And yet, in the um, th- the wake of the destruction of the temple, when Isaiah prepares the way for how we can cope with that destruction, there's this other theology which is that God accompanies us, that God wanders with us, and that in some sense we're all interconnected because this we, we share this divine ether. So, um, I mean, you're in Israel. I'm currently um, in the United States. We're, we're talking, that's a kind of post-exilic <laughs> uh, utopia or, or um, maybe not utopia, it's a consolation. I guess it depends how you think about it. But I just love your thoughts on like the importance or non-importance of place generally and also... Um, you know, the internet seems to allow us to gather in ways that don't require being embodied or being physically together. And that seems to to me to have some kind of uh, precursor in the prophetic idea that God doesn't necessarily need this specific home uh, in Jerusalem. Okay, I have a lot to say on this topic. And I'm going to start from a basic place. And, and I had an interaction exactly on this narrow point I'll make now, but I think it's a meta point as well, uh, last week. In my second book, which hasn't come out in English yet, which is called Everyone Can Be Moses, but it's only out in Hebrew so far, I tackle the question of what is the original commandment of the Sabbath? What is Shabbat, the Sabbath, at its most basic form? And we all talk about you can't do work, but the original commandment of Shabbat, of the Sabbath, was to stay in your place. Uh, nobody should leave their place on the seventh day uh, of the week, uh, whether it's to gather uh, the mana or something else. And place matters a lot. How one defines place has evolved over the generations. Um, it was originally the camp. Uh, the rabbis instituted this notion of tchumim or borders uh, where you could go 2,000 cubits Uh, outside of any city. But, you know, we could connect these areas of 2,000 cubits by creating an artificial thing called an Eruv, a mixer, which said that, ah, this is not really the end of the place. And we also have a notion brought down in in the Mishnah, which is there is a private place, it's called Rishutar Yachid, my private property, and a public place, Rishutar Rabin, which is public property. And by the way, we can't carry from one place to the other, that's part of the same biblical prohibition. But but if we put this line and these poles up, uh, which causes some consternation in some communities like the Hamptons in America, um, we, we can now carry, we call this a different kind of place, and it's an expanded place. And the question I deal with in the book is, in the internet era and in the autonomous vehicle era, can we redefine place for Shabbat? because it's been redefined in in the past. And I think in the notion of uh, autonomous vehicles, it's something to think about in that people are living farther from their families. And if the original intention is, and this is not a halachic or a Jewish law comment, if the original intention was that people should be together with their families and see them eye to eye on Shabbat, but they're far flung right now, could you redefine place around the range, for example, of an autonomous vehicle? Yes, autonomous vehicle. Yes or no? I think the answer to that question, by the way, in my own head, leans to no. But I think it's worth having the conversation. Similarly, how should we think about virtual place and connectivity, like you and I are on now? You're you're in Virginia. I'm in Tel Aviv, um, but we feel kind of close. Like, I wish I could see a little better than I can on this screen right now. But but we we feel kind of close and. I began to think about, and this comes back to my story from last week, I was sitting with five Dayanim, Jewish law judges, uh, last week, one of whom was Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, and this conversation came up, and he said, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that any kind of electronics that's on you or embedded in you is going to be okay on Shabbat, what's ever external to you, because it's outside of your place, your, your own personal space is going to be prohibited 
uh, going forward. And I said, I actually agree with that, but I think there's something beyond that. I asked him, what about tablets? And my own view of place is that uh, if the connectivity is on, meaning it's not on airplane mode, that takes me out of my current place and my space and my ability to connect locally and stare in the eyes of people because I'm communicating elsewhere. And so a tablet connected is not the same as a tablet not connected. A tablet not connected is a digital book. A tablet connected is a different place. And, you know, that's, that's I think, the, the Sabbath conversation around, around place. I can pause for a second. I, I have a lot more to say on this topic as it relates to the first part of your question, which is, is God's place everywhere? Um, which I think is a slightly different question than, than the one I addressed. No, that's that's a great distinction. Actually, just on this, um, the more mundane sense of place, like the human place. So I I always marveled at the fact that in the um, the rabbinic presentation of the laws of Sabbath, right? As as you well know, there's thirty nine categories of work of prohibited work, um, presumably derived from the the sort of axiomatic actions needed to to make the the tabernacle. And the first one that's discussed in the Mishnah is the least obvious, in my view, the least obvious um, action, the the least obvious form of labor, and that's um, carrying from one domain to another. So I think uh, <laughs> this is a question we could all wonder about. Why why do the rabbis choose to present the first version of work, uh, of all the versions of work that they could give you, uh, that of bringing something from private domain to another private domain, <laughs> right? The beggar reaching out his hand and either giving something to a person uh, in, in the home or, or vice versa. So as you probably know, the medieval Tosafists say, they call this a weak category of work, which I think is to say because you didn't create anything. And so the rabbis needed to reinforce it. So they mentioned it first. I, I actually don't agree with that. I write this in the book as well. I think it is fundamental that this is the first uh, prohibited form of quote-unquote work because it's the underlying principle for everything, which is your job on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, is to form a community, touch people, be around the same table and in the same place. And by keeping you staying put and by making sure you don't extend outside of your of your territory, I do the first thing to limit your ability to go out and do creative work. And uh, it used to be in, in an agrarian society in particular that everything, but, but even in a commercial society, everything was done outside the house, outside of my private domain. I didn't create things on a computer inside my house, right? I Everything I created was, in, was outdoors and in a different domain. So by keeping you inside, um, and not letting you carry tools or anything like that, or tools of commerce like money uh, outside, I've ensured that you've created a community on this day. And so I actually view it, it starts with that because it's actually the baseline and it's the biblical commandment in its first instantiation. I want to keep the camp together. And it's particularly important, by the way, because we're trying to form a community. Um, you know, the, 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 the year is a solar calendar. The month is a, mo- a lunar calendar. The week is artificial. It is only it only exists by the fact that a community of people decides to call it a week, and that requires extra fortification uh, on it. And that's why I think I think the baseline. So I think this notion of of God's place and the place of God and where human beings fit is 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 really interesting and kind of where we're going is maybe even more interesting because um, Isaiah, as you said, said that the whole earth is filled with God's glory, honor, presence. Um, Yoel, one of the 12 smaller prophets, uh, talks about a future where uh, old people and young people will have visions uh, of the future. And of course, it is also said that the whole world will be filled uh, with God's knowledge um, just as uh, the water covers the seas. And I think this is a progression. Uh, that's a not obvious one, but one that we are living in a time of right now. So the original instantiation, I believe, of a, of a temple and a kingship um, in Deuteronomy was a very limited government, and if you will, a place, a hallowed place to go up to. 
Um, for whatever reason, that system failed. I think there was overshoot uh, of, of taking of authority, both by the priests and by the kings. And Isaiah recognizes that the time is no longer relevant uh, for this kind of, of system. And he, I don't know if he changes the theology, but makes it more relevant uh, to his time. But I think if you kind of carry this forward, which actually also carries it back to Genesis, there is a Jewish notion which is radical in that each person is endowed with the Spirit of God. Um, Maimonides, uh, who you've covered in one of your Threadapaloozas, if I remember correctly, um, talks uh, often, brings the, the verse from Psalms that uh, man is just a little less than God. He's been reduced a little less than God, which means I think he has the creative powers and creative spirit of a God, but he's not himself God, lest he self uh, engage in self-worship or self-idolatry, uh, which would make him lord over other peoples who themselves are endowed uh, with God's image. But this, this radical view that each of us is very godly and just a little less than God, as the verse in Psalm says, is, is really important because that says that God himself, who was a creator of universes and a creator of the universe, um, expects of me to be a creator and a creator of universe. And that casts upon me responsibility to know more. Now, I referred to the verse before of uh, the world being covered or the just like the seas are covered with water. So the land is covered with uh, the knowledge of God, not right. And so there's this dispersion of godly knowledge, which is something I think the internet has enabled us to do. And to take it a step further from the verse in Yoel or Joel, um, this enables us through artificial intelligence, deep learning, um, and just these unbelievably powerful tools at our fingertips to be able to predict the future and therefore influence it through this knowledge that has been given to us at our fingertips. And I think it endows us with an awesome responsibility, not rights, by the way, responsibilities for how we use these creative and creationary tools to make the world uh, better and godly in that way. I totally share that that theological stance that sort of one of the main reasons for being human and for existing is to emulate God as a as a creative being. I, I find a lot of uh, power and, and, and inspiration in that idea. Um, one of the machlokets, one of the controversies or debates, let's say, within uh, Jewish history is between the rationalists and the mystics. And, you know, you could almost pick any age and, and find those two camps. Uh, more recently, I think of the sort of the 18th and 19th century uh, European wars between the Mitnagdim, the, the opposers, you know, the, the Lithuanian uh, Talmudists, and the Hasidim, the, the sort of the pietists who, who, who thought the purpose of, uh, of life was not just to know God, but maybe even just to, to, to merge with God or to experience God in some kind of intuitive way or some kind of reverie. And uh, the, ra the rationalists look at, let's say, people in song and dance, and they say, you know, where's the content? Um, or um, this seems a bit arrogant, you know, to think that, you know, just by making a bunch of l'chaims, you can really, you know, bring God more <laughs> cl cl close, right? And then the, the Hasidim, uh, broadly speaking, you know, look at the look at the sort of rationalists and they say, you know, you you're too focused on knowledge. You're too focused on cognition. You're too focused on sort of the material world and the fruits of, of the scientific method or, or the analytic method. But you're missing the heart. You're missing the spirit. You're missing this this thing that helps people come alive and that speaks to the common person, you know, who doesn't have that literacy. I'm wondering if if sort of um, I, I imagine that your day-to-day -day job has you probably more in the, um, you know, the world of the analytic and the cognitive. And you also, um, from my understanding, you trained um, under uh, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein at the Gush, which uh, Gush Etzion, which is a yeshiva that that comes from this sort of Lithuanian school. Um, what your what is what is your response or what is your take on that sort of controversy or that debate between sort of the spiritualists and the rationalists and and specifically on this issue of like is the goal knowledge or is the goal maybe something more than knowledge what mystics might call gnosis or some kind of way of being in the world beyond just having the information in your head so i think about this a bit differently um number one familiarly 
and genetically, I'm definitely come from the rationalist camp, half Yekka German Jewish and half Lithuanian. Uh, and my training, most certainly under Rabbi Lichtenstein and others, was the uh, Lithuanian rationalist camp, and I consider myself a rationalist. Um, there's a rabbi in Israel, Natan Slifkin, who, who caught a lot of flack and just recently published a book in English called Rationalism Versus Mysticism, and um, I'm clearly on the rationalist side of that. But um, I want to make a, a distinction that I think is really important. So, quote-unquote, the mystic camp has come to uh, envelop two different concepts that I think are very, very different and must be uh, differentiated. There's one part of it, the mysticism, which is what I call the remote control of God, which is, like you said, I drink a l'chaim and this good thing happens. I say a incantation or a chant and this good thing happens. I do what's called a segula, which is some sort of action or whatever, and God will do X. I don't think there's a remote control to control God, and I find the notion disturbing to be uh, perfectly perfectly candid, um, you know, like a, like a potion where you kind of drink this and this will happen. I, I'm going to interject I, on that just because I, I totally agree. And um, Moshe Halbertal has a great, a great idea in um, one of his books on why is the first sacrifice in the Torah Cain's sacrifice and why is it rejected? In other words, the first sacrifice is a rejected sacrifice. And his answer is exactly as you said, um, to teach you that the sacrifice isn't a it's not a remote control. If if God would accept the first sacrifice, then you would think, oh, if I just sacrifice, then God will will accept it. So the rejection has to come first to be like, no, at, you're at you're at the mercy of something that that's beyond your will or your control. So I didn't know that. And but I think it's a, a very powerful insight. Uh, and so I. I find that notion of mysticism, I find the notion of ecstasy as a general proposition um, fleeting um, and lacking staying power. Now, at the same time, I don't think someone can reject out of hand, in fact, quite the contrary, the notion that poetry, song, uh, touches the soul in a meaningful way way. And I don't think one can reject the notion that psychology is not always rational. Human beings are not rational. You know, Dan Ariely and, and, and Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky, all of whom are Israeli, by the way, made a living out of showing the irrationality of people in, in economic decisions. We are not fully rational beings, and life wouldn't be that fun if we were. It could be robots if we for fully rational beings. And so I think it is undeniable that the human soul and the human psyche are, are significantly influenced by things that are not rational. Um, and I think the business I'm in, venture capital and investing, is exactly the cross between this. Rational people don't start companies. Uh, rational people don't have the optimism to be able to kind of overcome the amount of no's they get in this business. By the same token, you need rationalization of economics and you can't invest in, you know, remote controls of God or nonsense uh, or stuff that, you know, can't make any sense. And so I think part of the job, both of a religious thinker and in this case, a venture capitalist also, is to have the song, the optimism, the soul work that pulls people's best efforts forward, that does irrational things while at the same time balancing it with, you know, both values uh, that are of this earth and and the rationality that comes with, you know, nuts and bolts of business and economics. And I think that's kind of a special treat I find that, you know, merges both my religious interests and, and my business interests uh, in a one place. But I think that's the human makeup at the end of the day, which is, We'd be boring if we were fully rational. We actually wouldn't create much if we were fully rational. By the same token, if you're fully detached, you turn out, you influence very, very few uh, people. I think for what it's worth, the Baal Shem Tov, the father of Hasidut and this branch, what, what he did so effectively, when you think about it, uh, part of it was irrational, but a large part of it was rational. He took the peasants and he said, you're royalty, put on royal dress. That was really rational. Um, 
you're not just a peasant. You, you, you can stand toe-to-toe with anybody. I'll give you a different Torah with which to stand toe-to-toe and kind of create your own uh, environment. And you'll do it from a place of dignity rather than a place of being a second-class citizen. And I think that's super powerful, uh, even though I don't subscribe to that school. Great. There's a lot in, in what you said that resonated. I, I'm thinking, of course, I, I, I got to say, um, you know, I love uh, Kahneman and, and Tversky. Um, but the, the insight that that man is not uh, in his constitution only rational is, is quite an ancient one. So Plato talks about the tripartite soul, um, which he, he gives the metaphor of uh, the white horse representing reason and the black horse being passion or eros. And then there's a, a charioteer who you know wants to steer according to the white horse according to reason but often is uh is moved in the other direction and um for my recall i mean it's a complicated uh telling but we actually need that black horse kind of like in judaism we need the Yetzir hara you need you need sort of the uh rebellious or the deviant urge um to direct you because if you just follow that rational path it's going to be sort of universal vanilla boring um on the, hey, uh, hey, let's 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 be honest. If it wasn't, you know, the Gemara says this, the Talmud says this. If it wasn't for the evil inclination, quote unquote, or the eros, or whatever it is, there would be no children in the world. Exactly. And so, you know, I make maybe a politically incorrect comment. You'll you'll forgive me for it now, um, but the quote unquote rationalists, I think they're irrational for what it's worth. So some of these climate change people today have conquered the eros. People are thinking, I'm not having children today. And they have all these rational explanations for how the world is coming to an end. Um, again, I think they're irrational, but because the world's been coming to an end for many, many, many centuries, but it hasn't yet. You know, and, and they, they, they dampen, crush the human soul that desperately wants to have sexual intercourse and have children. And the deep desire to procreate and create a copy of yourself, which turns out not to be a copy of yourself, by the way, for anyone who has children and actually knows that. Uh, and, 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 and that's such a soul crushing, it's humanity crushing and ultimately irrational, by the way. Interesting. Well, yeah, I, re- I, I saw Ezra Klein, you know, wrote in the New York Times recently that like most of his friends are, are not having children or, or considering not having children because of the, the climate crisis. And so I, I, it's, it's, it, I hadn't thought of it this way, but it's interesting to, to think of the, um, the rabbinic teaching that we need the the yetzer hara the the uh, the deviant urge to to let us overcome those doubts. So even if you just bracket, um, you know, what is the que- what is good and evil? I think um, one way to think of the yetzer hara or this black horse is is the the passion that we have. You know, let let the commentators decide whether it's whether it's good or evil. But it, it's a force that doesn't fit within our moral framework because it's just so immediate, so visceral that by the time you've you've contended with it, it's always after the fact. So just returning to this uh, Hasidic revolution, as you mentioned the Baal Shem Tov. So one of the great rational thinkers of all time, one of the great Talmudists of all time, the Vilna Gon, uh, literally uh, the great one of Vilna, he was not only opposed to Hasidism when it when it was uh, in its you know inception, but he sort of um, he licensed. I, I'm trying to say this in a way that will um, just to people out of context won't won't make it sound so bad, but it, it is kind of bad. Um, I, he 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 licensed that you could persecute. Let's just leave it at that. You could persecute Hasidim, and it's not a violation of. The Torah, it's not a violation of this sort of ethos of loving your fellow man or your fellow Jew, um, because these people are so beyond the pale. And when I think of that story, right, you know, 100, 150 years later, um, the Hasidic Jews won. They they won acceptance in the Jewish community. And actually, like in the early 1900s, uh, if I'm getting the history right, they formed an alliance with their uh, opposers because there was a third enemy, which was secular Zionism. (laughs) you know, the Enlightenment, the Maskilim, and that they formed the Aguda, which is, you know, the basis for today's ultra-Orthodox coalition, which is basically the idea of like, put aside this rational mystical divide, we can both agree that modernity is pretty bad or secularism is pretty bad. Um, When I think about that story through the lens of like, uh, you know, biography of Steve Jobs or uh, a, a film like The Social Network. It seems like an obvious example of what uh, in Silicon Valley would be called FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You have an upstart and you have an incumbent. And um, 
this is this is blockbuster, you know, relative to Netflix. This is uh, taxi medallions re relative to Uber. This is hotel owners relative to Airbnb. Like the Hasidic revolution saw a need and they grew virally and uh, and they in some sense were a condemnation on the mainstream community, which wasn't solving or addressing that need. But when we tell these kinds of stories in the context of Judaism or tradition, I begin to feel a little bit more mixed because generally like in a more, um, let's say economic context, I'm generally like pro innovation. So like, I think Airbnb is fantastic. I, you know, the world's gotten better, but um, you know, as a somewhat of a traditionalist, I, I, um, I can sympathize more with the people who opposed uh, Hasidism in its inception, because how do you differentiate, let's say, um, an upstart movement that's bringing new life versus an upstart movement that's totally derailing. So maybe that's not a question we can answer in our time, but kind of how does your startup cap and your um, in investing cap um, help you sort of reckon with these mo movements in Jewish history that in, in their um, moment of origin seem like heretical, but then if you um, if you take a longer view that arguably they inject new life and, and they provide the necessary competition to, to make the community and the content better. Number one, let me state up front that people close to me would say that I'm radical in my thinking and conservative in my practice or maybe a bit out there in my thinking and more conservative in my practice. Um, but I want to take this at a higher level and then try to drill down. So your story of the Vilna Gone and and Hasidism, uh, Hasidut is is actually not unique neither to that period nor to Judaism, uh, nor, nor to Judaism, right? So, if we go back two thousand or so years, we had the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, who, if you believe the account in the Jerusalem Talmud, there was real bloodshed, uh, where uh, Beit Shammai got a momentary parliamentary majority and uh, enacted eighteen decrees which, by the way, Maimonides, if my memory serves me correctly, says we're actually 36, and the Rabbi uh, Yitzhak of Fez says we're 54. Um, either way, these were big economic and religious decrees um, that they got a momentary parliamentary majority, and they killed the other members, the other sect, you know, the other people who had differences of opinion. According to Jerusalem Talmud, according to the Babylonian Talmud, they just drove a, a sword into the ground of the study hall uh, on that day. And the early Christians that came out of Judaism, whether it was Jesus himself or uh, many of the apostles thereafter, are, you know, in some ways brought in. Uh, you see that they're clearly, you know, in the same synagogue still and in some ways thrown out uh, from it. By the way, the same thing is true of Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, in the time, by the way, right around the story of the Vilna Gone and Hasidut, right? And... Uh, you know, the Reformation is born of that. Adam Smith is born out of that. And we can see a lot of things. And, you know, around the same time, you know, we have Shabtai Tzvi, a false messiah, uh, creating a sect. And he was clearly false. So I say all this just simply to say that in real time, it's actually impossible to know whether deviant, these are deviant movements or they're regenerative movements or just the next leg up in any kind of traditional society, which, by the way, traditional societies need in order to uh, deal with the uh, changes in the next century. Historical counterfactuals are really, really difficult. But one thing we can say, and I say this often, so ultra-Orthodoxy has lionized Europe, you know, the, the great shtetls of Europe and the houses of Torah of Europe, and some of that is in fact true. But long before the Holocaust, 50, 60 years before the Holocaust, there was a giant secularization. Where did the Haskalar or Maskilim come from? Or the Zionists, they came from what was ultra-Orthodoxy before that. And I think it's fair to say in retrospect that because of the closed nature of those societies, many people left because it didn't evolve. So um, in real time, you can't know. But I actually have a... a call it more radical view of this, which is I think we constantly, as a religious conservative community, need to be thinking 25 years into the future rather than playing catch up. I think we're in a period right now, some of which has to do with the fact that religious clergy 
uh, rabbis, priests, it doesn't matter, are not facile with technology. Uh, part of it has to do uh, with the fact that the world is just accelerated and what I would call the private ecosystem is, is working at internet speed and government and traditional and religious ecosystems are at best on Windows 95 and may st still be operating on the Pony Express operating system. And uh, my own view is we need to accelerate and we need to dare to pull ourselves forward into you know, the 21st century and think 25 years ahead. Uh, I just was interviewed for a piece in, in Hebrew and a, a well-known rabbi who's a friend of my parents reached out and said, hey, you know, religion is always the tension between conservatism and, uh, and pushing forward. The question is where you move the, move the fulcrum at any point in time. I, I think that's true. However, I think the fulcrum is stuck uh, too conservative for too long. And I think we're losing too many people for being out of step. And I think we need to lean forward uh, on this topic. Another way of maybe asking this question is in, in the business world, um, there's a kind of amorality or, or if you want to say it differently, um, the, the moral norm is um, create value and you measure that value generally in terms of you know, revenue or profit or, you know, number of customers, whatever the metric is, like, there's no uh, deontological metric. There's no metric of duty or responsibility beyond that that would say, should this product exist? Instead, it, there's an assumption, you mentioned Adam Smith before, that if people are buying it, it ought to exist. Um, and people are revealing their preference. And generally, it's good to go along with people's revealed preferences. So if you... Um, if one person is offering monotheism and that is not selling, and another person is offering paganism and that's selling, from a purely business point of view, the, the paganism is doing more good than the monotheism. Um, the way that I framed that question was sort of intentionally provocative because I think that if you're a religious person, um, you believe that you're accountable to some guardrail other than just um, creating something that the customers want. You have to ask, is this something that customers should have? Does it increase human flourishing? What are the resources for reflecting on that question in this sort of more amoral business context, especially when we're talking about um, products and things whose consequences we can't really predict long term? So I think differently about the first side of the equation. I don't think business is amoral. And I, and I don't think that Adam Smith was amoral. You know, we, we've forgotten that Adam Smith grew up in a context. He grew up in the context of Protestant, the, the emergence of Protestantism. He grew up in the context of a community of faith that was around him that had guardrails and had norms. And so the brewer and the baker, to borrow the oft-quoted line from Adam Smith, operated in a context. And what I argue for in my books is kind of exactly that, which is context is, is really, really important. And I will argue that a lot of the fractiousness we have in society today, a lot of the what you call amoral, and I will call the ideal, idealization of amoralism, is actually born of the fact that we've had a retreat of religious sensibilities and religious aspirations and religious guardrails. And therefore, there's actually nothing wrong with capitalism, but capitalism has become detached from the fertile soil of community, religion, theology, and the guardrails of mutual responsibility it provides. And so my own view as I articulate in the books is the Bible is about a community of faith. If going back to your first question, where I can know you and predict you, because we have a similar code and therefore I can do extensive business with you and be super successful and super profitable, by the way, as a great measure of being successful. But it's rooted in both these timeless principles and this code that we've agreed on that will operate on together. And I don't believe that business is amoral and can be. And by the way, I think in the 21st century with the transparency of the internet and the speed of discovery, and the loudmouths on social media, I think the more amoral to immoral you are, the more you get undone. Like it may succeed for a while, but ultimately you actually get undone. So there's a lot of value in having values that create value or what I prefer to call timeless principles that, that will create value. And so 
I think actually the same guardrails, as you call them, or, or aspirations beyond making a buck uh, exist in business as exist in, in the world of theology. Great. I, I don't I don't dispute that. And I, I certainly think business can be a tremendous force for good in so many ways. Um, but like when I think of the prophets, for example, uh, you know, Elijah, I think of these sort of these lonely voices who who have something to say that they believe in uh, and they're being ignored. And so if you if you take a um, a sympathetic view of the prophets, uh, a moralistic view, you might say, you know, it's important that they say this message. It's important that it be out there and it's um, it's it doesn't have to succeed in its time. Maybe a generation or two or 10 later, it, that message will eventually be proven true. And that's enough. If you're looking at them from the point of view of a venture capitalist investor, maybe I shouldn't say that because since since I'm not one, but I imagine that you'd want to say, well, you know, how are how are you succeeding in getting this message across? You know, you've got a nice website, you've got a nice mission statement, but like your product just isn't selling. Um, I think you you know you need to go out and do more field research and figure out what the people want. But like, what the people want in the case of um, Elijah's time might not be what Elijah has to offer. So, you know, from one point of view, you could say, well, you need to tweak the way you're delivering the message, work on user experience design. But from another point of view, there's just the, the, the morality is hitting up against a culture that doesn't accept that morality. So Henry Ford famously said that if you ask the people what they wanted, they wanted a faster horse. Nobody knew they wanted an automobile. And I actually heard Steve Jobs on stage the first time he kind of pulled the iPhone out of his pocket. I was in the room uh, and kind of mysteriously held it up. And, you know, people didn't know they wanted a computer in their pocket either, although there was the Newton before that and and Palm and Handspring, et cetera. I think products that people have long forgotten. But but actually, I think that people in many cases don't know what the future, their future self wants. Um, they know what they want now. In fact, by the way, I write this in my most recent book on the book of numbers. What people actually most often want is not to have the pain of the uncertainty going forward. And they prefer what they knew in Egypt, even though, even with the pain that it had in the servitude and bondage, because it was at least a known pain. And it's the job of entrepreneurs and startups to help people get to a place where the future self of them wants this product or this service that they never knew they wanted or needed. Uh, but now that it's there, they can't not have it and they can't like turn it off. I you know the rabbis write in the Talmud that the only prophet, there were many more prophets. The only prophecies that were written down were ones that were needed for future generations. So I think it's actually inherent almost that the prophets in their own time were less well heeded, but over time, those messages are, those messages are extraordinarily valuable. And I think that's, you know, the case of many of them, obviously, Elijah, Jonah, Jonah ended up being kind of successful. Um, Isaiah, certainly Jeremiah, to say the least. Um, when I look at Jeremiah, by the way, yelling at the priests of his time who were kind of holding on to the temple and saying, this is the temple of God, this is the temple of God, you know, and we're here, it can't disappear. And he goes, it's not going to be here, this is going to look differently. And that enables us to imagine a different future, one that is not as rooted in in bricks and stones or, or, or marble and marble and wood um, with the priests hanging out there. And the priests obviously have lost um, their, their position over the Jewish people. And, and the future world looks different, much like when a startup comes, the, the priests who are the incumbents in these businesses, you know, lose their hegemony over the way the world looks right now. You know, I still remember yellow pages, you know, jobs got rid of those in the iPhone he got rid of a lot of printed newspapers in the iPhone. He, he, you know, so many things were, were were decoupled from their physical objects and put it in the iPhone. And by the way, many less trucks because of that delivering things and newspaper boy. I mean, I'm like, there's a million of these things that disappeared in the digital ether. And uh, it's a different world that no one knew they needed or wanted. I have so many questions on that. That was a beautiful answer. Um, uh, what what comes to mind right now is just the idea of the people get eventually do get to the promised land. Obviously, the first generation doesn't get there, so there's something <laughs> there's something in that structure, right? About kind of the um, the first generation being inherently skeptical, and then the sort of the late adapters get to benefit <laughs> from everybody else's hard work. 
Um, but yeah, but think, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, but think about this one second. Um, so the Jewish people, the Israelites, leave Egypt. They send the spies forward. We can talk about that maybe another time, why two guys, the contrarians, got it right. Contrarian investing is often right. But the, the herd, you know, buys high and sells low, right, which is the 10 spies scaring the people off from entering the land. Um, ultimately, the contrarians are right, though. Uh, but then there's 38 years in the wilderness. Now, I've asked myself this question, like, how did somebody who knew they were going to be in the wilderness for 38 years get up every morning? But they didn't just get up. They had kids. They had a hopeless present and future on a personal level. But the national aspiration, the belief that the next generation would have it better was so strong that they kept having children to populate the next generation who would solve the problem. How powerful is that? That's unbelievable. These may be the late adopters and they ultimately realize the dream, but that interim wilderness generation, how powerful is that? That they aspired, had optimism, and wanted the next generation to succeed and figure it out. That's amazing. Apropos also the climate change conversation we had before. Have kids, they'll solve the problem. Totally. Well, that also harkens to the um, the rabbinic reading of uh, of Exodus, where the um, the Pharaoh has just uh, de- declared genocide against uh, the firstborn or against the males, uh, the baby males. And the response, according to the rabbis, is that they they go um, the Israelites go and they have like tons of kids. Absolutely. And in one in one midrash, they 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 bury or they they put their kids out in the in the fields, you know, and, uh, and somehow they're magically taken care of by angels. But, um, you know, which, I, which I guess all of these stories are kind of stories of anti-decadence stories of, um, where the oppressed group actually seems to have more resources for hope than the oppressor group, which is kind of, uh, to, to use Tyler, Tyler Cowett's phrase, the complacent class. So let me take a step back on that, on that topic of sort of decadence and, and complacency. Um, and ask you, so I think for for people who are religious, for people who believe in God or believe in transcendence or believe in the soul, it's it's easier um, to not be decadent because your sense of purpose is is sort of obvious. Um, but for many people who just have a hard time with that belief in God, um, you know, they, they identify as rational and, you know, they've read their Darwin or they've read their, you know, Daniel Dennett or their Marx or whatever it is. There's like many, many paths to sort of disbelief. But they're not going to, I don't think they're not going to reclaim anti-decadence through, um, through worldview. So how do we get, how do we get people to sort of cultivate the sense of hope or the sense of emunah, the sense of faith in the future, absent traditional religion or absent traditional theology? Um, when, when we think about, you know, American culture or I guess secular Israeli culture, like, how do we make this the more general ethos available if with without the baggage that that so often turns them off or is it really a package and like unfor- you know you're you're either um you're either on the boat with noah or you're not and and unfortunately like some people just aren't ain't, uh as, as they say on, on twitter ngmi not gonna make it <laughs> okay i'll start by answering with a story that happened on uh monday of last week a guy walked in my office he's halfway through my most recent book on, on numbers, which is called Milk, Honey, and Uncertainty. In the, in the last paragraph of the introduction of the book, I say people who've read this in advance uh, have said this may be too belief-based, too religious in its outlook. Um, and I'm, of course, among those believers. But I think there's a lot in this drive to make the future better um, and to dive into uncertainty and leverage it for creativity that should speak to non-believers as well, and that the biblical stories are a cultural anchor for that and a historical anchor for that, whether their stories are historical or ahistorical doesn't matter, but it's been around for thousands of years, uh, these stories, and has driven the vast majority of humankind over time uh, to keep driving forward. Anyway, a guy walks in my office a, a week ago and he said, uh, you have it backwards. He said, this book's not for believers. He says, I'm an atheist. This book is for me. And it's more obviously for me because I never understood how the Bible, the Tanakh, uh, the Hebrew Bible was, was relevant for me. You know, they told him the stories, 
But these aren't stories. These are moral lessons around our responsibility, whether you're a believer or not. And so number one, I think, is know your Bible. Number two is know your history. Malthus was wrong. I, I referenced in the, the Tree of Life and Prosperity, um, the English book you referenced before. Uh, there was a Thomas Malthus all, all through history. There was one five generations before Noah. Uh, they've been wrong every time. The world is not ending. There's a great book by Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist, which I highly recommend. Um, I recommend everything that Matt really writes. But it's, you know, the world's been ending multiple times. When I was a kid, it was acid rain. Now it was climate change. You know, it was the wrong amount of food for Malthus. And go all the way back to Jared. Uh, five generations before Noah said there wouldn't be enough food. And, and it hasn't ended yet. And so it hasn't ended because human ingenuity has driven the world forward uh, for that. But now I want to make a, a very politically incorrect uh, comment, which I'll apologize to your listeners for. Uh, up front. The Western world that has either taken what you call the rationalist approach or a deep secularist approach, which started in Europe and has spread to the U.S. The U.S. used to be a very religious country. That is changing a bit. Europe has become a secular country, is actually destroying its own future by not having children. This is not even a religious comment. It's not even a demographic comment where economic growth depends on demography. It's innovation comes from young people. So if you actually think the world needs to be fixed, the best way to fix the world is to make babies and to have children because they have the new ideas and the new context of how to fix the world. So if you think that the world needs fixing, which to Ezra Klein's point drives people to some level of despondency, I find his whole column terribly disturbing. Um, the best way to fix it is to have kids and be optimistic about the futures. Pessimists create headlines, optimists win. People with babies create a better world. And so I think the historical argument of birth rates, children, innovation, in and of itself, should tell people that if they want to take responsibility for the world, which I think most people do, um, they need to have children and move forward. If what you want to do, as Isaiah says, is, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, I got, you know, I got nothing to say to you. And I think most people are good and want to improve the world. They don't want to eat, drink, and be merry. Another way of asking this question, right, is, um, and it kind of goes back to this rationalism and Hasidism conversation, is um, how do we get people, how do we create culture change? So, um, you know, one is is getting, let's say, uh, more Bible literacy if you think that the Bible has these moral teachings. But I, I still feel that, um, you know, making arguments is one way to move people who are who whose whose uh, will is is um, moved by argument. But because of this irrational dimension of the human being uh, that we alluded to before, the, this this passionate aspect, uh, change is also going to come from non-rational sources, from non-rational argument. So, like, what? What are the other levers that we have at our disposal besides, let's say, books and podcasts? Because, you know, our our audience here is tends to be people who are already kind of, you know, college educated, intellectual. The world, you know, um, a lot of innovation uh, come, comes from that, comes from college educated people. But um, a lot of cultural innovation seems to come from, you know, from the bottom, from the populace. So to the extent that we we could have influence <laughs> over popular culture um how would how would we uh how would we get the message of like hope or faith without the sort of the baggage of religion or ideology you know too heavy-handed to to sort of scale especially in the western world where you where according to you and i i tend to agree there's a certain uh assumption that the, the uh the future is going to be worse than the present which is kind of a strange kind of trying to kind of a strange turnabout um given that you know since the industrial revolution quality of life for so many has has gone in, insanely up first of all just to answer your last point I, i'm actually more optimistic than that i think we'll have a, a tough decade ahead but i think we'll get out of this um but because you asked the question i'm actually going to try out a new theory which i'm writing about right now right here on the podcast for the first time um but i'll start it with with two two anecdotes, which I think are about. So I chair the largest volunteer organization in Israel. It's called the Shomer HaChadash, or New Guardians. 
And it started because one guy decided to go up to a hilltop because he was sick and tired of, call them local marauders, particularly uh, Bedouin, uh, burning his father's fields, cutting his fences, and stealing his cattle. And he went up there and protected the field by being in there. And then he discovered that a lot of people suffered from the same problem. And they would come up and walk up to his hilltop and, and, uh, and join him in protecting uh, these things. And that created a massive movement, 100,000 volunteers who uh, do volunteer guard duty once a month uh, to guard farmers and ranchers from agroterrorism. And also, by the way, tens of thousands of people within those 100,000 plus uh, who do volunteer farm work. And he has brought both personal security and the importance of working the land and getting yourself dirty to the forefront. It is a movement of people, a movement of people. It's such a movement of people that our T-shirt, when you wear it, will enable you to get a hitchhike for sure in Israel. Anyone will stop for somebody wearing a Shomer Hadash, a New Guardians t-shirt, and give them a ride because it's so highly valued. And they stop me in the bar. When I walk around on my t-shirt, I'm like a celebrity. My car's got a decal on it. They'll let me park illegally. And this is a movement of people. Comparably, I think what the gay rights movement did very powerfully um, is create a movement of people that forced institutions and they have parades. I, for whatever it's worth, I don't like parades of any kind. Uh, I didn't even go to the Israel Day Parade as a kid either. Um, so I'm not a parade guy, but personally, but parades are a show of movements. And I think they did this extraordinarily successfully. And I think we are entering a new era today. And here's the thesis. Uh, Government and governance is in real trouble. I don't think that's a secret to anybody. Um, and the job of government, which has been, I would call it to top-down manage large parts of society, has stagnated and caused a lot of issues without having to get into all of them. I think we're trans I think Israel is about to become the leader of what I'm about to describe, but we're transitioning over. A lot has to do with self-organizing on the internet. A lot has to do with the ability of disparate people around the world to, to connect. By the way, that's what change.org did with uh, the gay pride movement. Um, and I think we're entering an era of civic movements that will cause dramatic change, that will drive change. And I think if we play this movie forward, it needs to become the job of government to support successful movement entrepreneurs, technology entrepreneurs in their endeavors. You know, I laugh at Elizabeth Warren and these other guys who think like the government's going to get us to space. I mean, give me a break with $5,000 hammers. I mean, give me a break. Elon Musk should be lauded for getting America into the space game again, right? And that like the government's going to get us off of fossil fuels, extent that that's necessary. I'm not certain it is, but to the extent it's necessary, uh, it's like a joke. So the government needs to become cheerleaders, both for social movements and be pickers and choosers. That's what you should get elected for. And almost investors in a portfolio of, of business and social entrepreneurs that will drive the future. And I think these civic movements is what's necessary to engender uh, a more positive future. By the way, I'm very aware of the fact that there's also some bad civic movements like BDS uh, and some pretty evil people out there. And those need to be nipped in the bud by the forces of good. But government's not doing that either right now. So that's not a better answer. Um, and that's where I think we're headed. And people get swept up in civic movements. They want to be in the herd. They want to be with, you know, and with what's popular. There's social contagion around them. Um, and if we have more good movements than bad movements, we'll be in good shape. Mm. Great. So I think uh, that's, that's, those are some powerful stories you shared. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pivot a little bit. Um, there's a, an idea that Torah, right? The word Torah would, can mean teaching or instruction. Um, but there's an idea, I don't know who, propo who proposed this, this definition, that Torah should be translated as justified law. So it's not just law, it's justified law. And uh, there's a thinker I really love, Robert Cover, a legal thinker. He wrote an essay called Nomos and Narrative, beautiful essay. He, was a, he, he, he died young, but he was a professor at Yale. And he was part of this movement um, to combine the study of law with the study of literature. And one of the places that he goes to is Jewish tradition. He was also Jewish because we uh, in Judaism have always known the intertwinement of halakha and agadah, of, of law or policy 
and also these sort of intangible stories that 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 get transmitted maybe roughly corresponding in, in some of the things you've been talking about to the sort of the t-shirts that people wear being the the agada and the uh and the parades and the halakha being sort of uh what comes out of that in any case um, when you read the the Chumash or you, you read the five books of Moses, it's uh, it starts very much with story, with you know Genesis, and only gets to law much later. Um, but when you read the Mishnah, uh, it's all law, and um, scholars call that apodictic because it doesn't justify itself. And then you have the Talmud, the Gemara, is basically searching for justification for the Mishnah. Right? F- famously, Talmud begins by saying, "On what." Does this Mishnah rely and then search for a scriptural proof or something like this? And in other words, there's a kind of anxiety in the Gemara and the Talmud with this idea of unjustified law. Um, and then you get the Mishnah Torah from Maimonides, which is actually going back in some sense to unjustified law and saying, I'm just going to tell you what the law is. Don't get caught up in these justifications. Just do this. And then commentaries on it uh, because, you know, that's uncomfortable. So. If I peel back from that and think about this sort of the swing between justified and unjustified, I think that um, there's something about intuition, this unjustified uh, uh, sense of, of what we should do being important. And then it's also important to, to show the work and explain the work. But as you were talking about with investing, often you don't get to show the work until much later because the dust has to settle. I'd love your kind of thoughts on on this dialectic or this swing between the justified and the unjustified between Agadah and Halakha and just your general thoughts on that either in Judaism or in business or both so um lemonade the insurance company told a story out of the gate before we had product we had a story and the story said that insurance is a mucked up business because there's a fundamental conflict of interest between the insurer and the insuree. The insurance company, Geico, State Farm, Allstate, makes more money when they reject your claim in your time of misery. Like you just had a flood and you file a claim and they get paid more by making you miserable and kind of reducing your claim and think you might be fraudulent and this, that, the other. And so it's a really misaligned business. So Lemonade told the story that we get aligned. We only take a flat fee to, uh, to manage the pool uh, set percentage of the premiums in order to do that. And there would also be AI and big data and we'd get to better predictive analytic models on on the underwriting and ultimately our underwriting uh, would get better. I'll argue that the arc of the story of Lemonade, which was very different in its narrative telling from all the other insurtechs out there, is part of what's made Lemonade fastest growing insurance business ever. Um, and the one with the most staying power, even in this down market. And I think that's important because stories don't just justify the law. They actually pull it forward. They force you to have the execution reach the aspiration. And I think this notion of Agadah and Halakha, Jewish law and Jewish storytelling, and even the storytelling of the forefathers in the Bible, which, you know, comes before all the laws, creates an aspirational uh, story and society to which the law is pulled. And by the way, the law puts up guardrails as you go to try to achieve uh, that story. And I think as human beings, and this really goes back to your first question uh, that you asked, our soul wants to hear stories. A great book called The Storytelling Animal, that obviously is what differentiates us uh, from from animals. Um, and stories enable us to aspire, create narrative arcs. Those narrative arcs both contextualize legal frameworks and create the aspiration to move those legal frameworks forward in order to address the future. Not just the present, but in particular, uh, the future. And I think that's a critical part of this. You, you, you can get people to do inhuman things, positively and negatively, um, by telling a story that people want to rally around. And again, it's the job of the law to both to keep guardrails on it and to move towards that aspirational uh, limit. That balance is tricky, obviously. Um, but uh, really, really, really critical part of everything we do. Story detached from law is fantasy land.
law detached from story is insufficiently aspirational. I love that. That reminds me, of course, of the uh, the rabbinic image. It's a strange one of the uh, the husband with two wives. I guess that's also politically uh, anachronistic, right? Uh, Halakha and Agadah. And each one, uh, uh, one picks out his gray hairs and one picks out his black hairs and he's bald. <laughs> so uh, the point is you can't just pick and choose either story or law. That's how I read that. Uh, you got to love both, but that that's the challenge because some of us are more drawn, let's say, to the wonky stuff and some of us are more drawn to the the passion, but we don't necessarily want to look at an Excel spreadsheet. So hopefully we can uh, <laughs> figure out the right balance there. Thank you so much for your uh, your thoughts on all of this and uh, you know keep writing and uh, studying and uh, synthesizing it with your uh, innovative work. Thanks, Zora. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for coming. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.